Good to see everybody this morning. We are glad that you are here. We are in Matthew chapter 10. We've worked our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And this week we're verses 5 through 15. So you want to get out your Bibles, your electronic devices, look along in the bulletin, uh, whatever it is that you got so you can read along with me. Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15. Listen carefully, please, as this is God's word. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. At whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn about your son, Jesus. So we ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand what's going on here. Help us to know how to apply this word to our lives in such a way that it makes a difference. Help us to receive the gospel and not reject it. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. And as always, we need your grace. Give us that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know how many of you have read the book City of Thieves by David Benoff. Uh, but in this gripping novel, uh, David Benoff uh, weaves a tale about the siege of Leningrad during World War II. And this novel is loosely based on his grandfather's stories about surviving World War II in Russia. And he takes his grandfather's name for the main character, Lev Benioff. And the story starts with 17-year-old Lev having elected to stay in Leningrad during the siege. Lev is a shy and scrawny petty thief and the mousy son of a disappeared Jewish poet. And he's caught looting a German paratrooper's corpse. During wartime, the penalty for this infraction is execution. And so Lev is thrown into the same cell as Kolya, who's an articulate and handsome deserter from the Russian army, who's something of a braggart and a blowhard, and they're both thrown into the same cell where they both await their coming execution. And then this strange colonel shows up, Colonel Gretchko. And he confronts Lev and Kolya and offers this pair, these unlikely uh, duo, an impossible task 
in exchange for their lives. He'll spare them from execution on the condition that they acquire one dozen eggs for his daughter's wedding cake. If they can't find the eggs in one week, the colonel is going to hunt them down and kill them. Remember, the story is taking place during the siege of Leningrad. It's a city suffering from intense deprivation. Finding a dozen eggs in less than a week is a ludicrous mission. But since it'll save their lives, they agree to these bizarre terms and they head out. And Lev is this uh, engaging and self-deprecating narrator. He recounts his own lack of qualifications in the novel. He says, this wasn't the way I had imagined my adventures would go. But reality ignored my wishes from the start, giving me a body best suited for stacking books in the library. Injecting so much fear in my veins, I only cower in the stairwell when violence comes. Maybe some days my arms and legs will thicken with muscle and fear will drain away like dirty bathwater. I wish I believed those things would happen, but I didn't. I was cursed with the pessimism of both the Russians and the Jews, two of the gloomiest tribes in the world. Still, if there wasn't greatness in me, maybe I had the talent to recognize it in others. And so Lev and Kolya head off on their new mission, which exposes them to the most ghoulish acts of a starved population. It's the siege of Leningrad. There's no food getting in. And it's just a, a terrible time. And they get behind enemy lines. And they get into the, the Russian side. And they go through this series of just nightmarish war zones populated by cannibals and prostitutes and starving children and demonic Nazi chess enthusiasts. It's an odd book. And Lev is the cynical but very sympathetic observer of all the devastation around him and the lengths people will go to when they have no food. And his mission is to get food, a dozen eggs. And he finds these unexpected reserves at a crucial moment of, of just great courage. And with this unlikely friendship with Kolya, who is this flamboyant ladies' man, coolly reckless in the face of danger, Figures he's got nothing to lose. He'll either die on the mission or they're going to shoot him anyways. And they go out, and in the end, Lev sees no greatness in himself. And he says he's utterly inadequate, even considers himself cursed. And yet he outwits the German soldiers. He wins the pretty girl's heart, and he returns to Leningrad with a dozen unbroken eggs. And it's this against-all-odds odyssey. Lev becomes this unspectacular and unlikely hero. And I think what we have in Matthew are unspectacular and unlikely heroes. See, at the beginning of Matthew 10, which we saw last week, Jesus selects, like, the wrong guys. I mean, he selects all these guys that you and I would not pick. They don't like each other. They don't get along. They're not Facebook friends. Some of them hate each other. 
and he gathers them together. And the only thing that you can write about these guys is they're utterly unspectacular in and of themselves. Most of them are just ordinary men. A couple of them we know nothing about. They don't show up in the Bible anymore. <coughs> they get named, that's it. But we also know that they become spectacular through their union with Christ. That they become unlikely heroes because of their relationship with Christ. And I think when Jesus gives them their mission, which he's about to do in our text, they got to be thinking, this is just bizarre. This is not the way you're supposed to do it. You know, well, what's going on here, Jesus? And you realize that Jesus is going to work in them and through them and with these imperfect people. Now, up to this point in Matthew, Jesus has been the one doing all the ministry. His disciples have watched. He's healed the sick and stilled the storm and cast out demons and preached to the masses and called sinners to repent and believe. But now Jesus does something unprecedented. In Matthew 10, verse 1, we read, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And just a few verses earlier, at the end of chapter 9, we read, Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. He's using the same words to describe what Jesus does, to describe how Jesus is telling his disciples to do. This band of unspectacular and unlikely disciples are going to do the same works as Jesus. And so Jesus gives the disciples their mission. They're going to go out there and heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers. Sure, no problem, we got it. That's what Peter would have said. Judas would have said, how much is this going to cost? It's a bizarre mission. They can't do this. They don't know how to do this. And yet he sends them out. He gives them some guidelines, some very careful, delineated guidelines. It's the first thing we see in this passage is that his mission has his instructions. His mission has his instructions. It starts off, verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them. So here Jesus is giving specific instructions to his disciples about this specific mission that he's sending them on. I want to remind you, this isn't the same commission that comes later that he's going to give them when he sends them out to the world. Their task here is specifically bearing witness to Israel over a very short period of time. And his instructions to them have some things that are very specific to this situation. Not all of them are universally transferable. There's instructions here that are not to be applied to every missionary ever. There's not a prohibition here about missionaries raising support. You can't really interpret Jesus' words that way. He's speaking to a specific situation. There's no universal prohibition on missionaries taking a little extra clothing with them when they go to the field, even though Jesus puts those restrictions on his disciples here. 
And remembering that will keep us from misapplying his instructions. And although there's things that are very specific for these disciples on this mission, there's some principles here in the passage that I think are applicable to us today. And there's a lot that we can learn here, and I want to direct your attention to a few of those things. One of those things is knowing that his mission has his strategy. His mission has his strategy. That should be the second blank there in your outline. Again, verse 5. We get a description of the people that the disciples are being sent to. And there's a great message uh, in this, because in focusing the ministries of this disciples upon uh, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, essentially Jesus is declaring that the Messiah has come in accordance with prophecy. Look at verses 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The gospel of the kingdom, the Lord is telling us, must first be brought to Israel. It's not primarily to the Samaritans or the Gentiles that these disciples are being sent. First, they are sent to Israel. Why? Because the Messiah came for the sake of establishing the remnant of Israel in righteousness. The promises of God had been given in the Old Testament to Abraham and his descendants. The children of Israel have now strayed into uh, gross idolatry and immorality, and they'd been sent into exile. And in the midst of their misery, God, through the prophets, plug for the minor prophets Sunday school class, promised them that one day he'd send a Messiah who's going to call them back and reunite them with the living God. And by sending his disciples out to the Jewish people, Jesus is fulfilling the promises of God to Israel. Now he knows all Israel will not respond to these disciples as they preach the gospel of the kingdom. He's aware of that. And we'll see that later on at the end of this uh, passage. He makes clear there's going to be some who receive the message and there's going to be some who reject the message but it will be to those lost sheep of the house of Israel that the disciples will be sent. And there's at least two good reasons why Jesus' ministry is going to be done this way. One of them is theological and the other is practical. Nice how those go together. First one's theological. And theological reason is because God had made his covenant of grace with Abraham, had given his promises to the descendants of Abraham, and so Jesus sends his disciples to Israel because of the special place that Israel has in God's plan. And Christ has a particular love and concern for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are beloved. Of course, the Apostle Paul says that in Romans 11. He says, as regards the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So for their forefathers' sake, because of the covenant God has made with Abraham, because of the special role that Israel plays in the plan of God, Jesus sends his disciples to the Jews first. But there's a practical reason as well. We know from the Gospels, especially Luke, that there's a lot of godly people in Israel waiting for the Messiah. Simeon and Anna, just two examples of godly Jewish folk who believed the Old Testament and were waiting for the Messiah to come. What a better place to send the apostles of Jesus. 
I mean, this is done in order to lay the foundation for the church, which will go to the end of the earth and which will break across all the national and ethnic boundaries. What a better place to build a core group of followers of Christ than those who've already embraced the Word of God in the Old Testament, who've already embraced the promises that the Messiah is coming. And so Jesus sends the disciples to the Jewish people first. And as he sends them out, he uses this phrase, you are to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And in so doing, he's telling us that he's the good shepherd. If you can remember back a week to last Sunday, in our responsive reading, we read from Ezekiel 34. And there God had rebuked the leaders of Israel, both the priests and the judges, for not fulfilling their responsibilities. Their responsibilities are to establish Israel in righteousness. And the shepherds of Israel hadn't done their job. And that's very clear in Ezekiel. And so in Ezekiel 34, verses 11 and 12, God says, because the shepherds of Israel have failed, we read, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of cloudy and clouds and thick darkness. So the Lord Jesus, in sending his disciples out to the lost sheep, the house of Israel, is saying, I'm the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who's coming to seek and save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And all that is in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. But you have to realize his mission is the same as Paul's. It's the same elsewhere in the Bible. In Romans 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of uh, God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He begins first by evangelizing this remnant of Israel and then branches out to the Gentiles around him. Jesus' ministry went the same way. Christian ministry has always reached out to both the Jew and the Greek, both to those who are descendants of Israel and those who are not, Jew and Gentile. By the way, when you do that today, people will accuse you of anti-Semitism. How could you possibly present the gospel to those who are the Jewish race? That's anti-Semitic. I actually think it's just the opposite. See, Jesus is saying we must go to the Jewish people with the gospel. He's telling us it would be anti-Semitic not to go to Israel. It's a Jew, Jesus, telling us to take the gospel to Jewish people, and it's his Jewish followers, the apostles, who are to take the gospel to the Jew as well as the Gentile. Christ is the only Savior of mankind, and he has to be preached to everyone, and it is not an act of hatred to do so. It is the greatest act of love because we all want to see mankind united in faith with their Creator. And so Jesus calls us to preach the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. Notice that the Messiah comes looking for the lost sheep. Sheep are confused by ignorance and sin. It's not a flattering comparison when we read in the Bible that we're sheep. They're wandering helplessly. 
And it's to those who are helpless that Jesus comes. Sometimes we think we need to get ourselves all fixed up first before Jesus can come and do us any good. But he comes to those who are lost. It's precisely these sheep who realize they're lost that he's come for them. There's nothing we can do to prepare ourselves. He has come for us in all of our lostness. That's his strategy, to seek and save the lost. And how does he want us to do that? Well, he tells us that his mission has his message. His mission has his message. Look at verses 7 and 8. Here we see what the disciples are to proclaim. We see the power of Christ entrusted to them as they make that proclamation. They're to go out and preach the good news of the kingdom of God, starting at verse 7. Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pay and give without pay. Go. The message of the kingdom of heaven is the message that, in accordance with the scripture, in accordance with the prophets of the Old Testament, the Messiah is here to establish God's reign in the hearts and lives of his people. That's the good news of the gospel. The kingdom of the Messiah, the Lord of heaven, is being established, it's being started. The king has come. And that's the message that they're to go out and to preach to these people who knew the Old Testament, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. By the way, you need to note the emphasis in this message. If you compare it with other people who were sent out to preach, let's take Noah or uh, uh, Jonah. Let's take Joey, Jonah. He goes to Nineveh. What's his message? You're done. You're ruined. There is a chance of salvation if you repent. It's a different message than Jesus' message because here he doesn't say that ruin is near. He says salvation is near. Salvation is near. Don't be ruined by rejecting salvation. There is a positive emphasis on salvation, on the coming of kingdom that's apparent in the text. And it's the same message that was preached by John the Baptist. Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message preached by Jesus, the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Truth should always be repeated in preaching because we need to be reminded of the truths that we've learned once before. And so the apostles go out preaching the message that Jesus preached, preaching the message that John the Baptist preached, and they're sent out to confirm that message with miracles, healing the sick and so forth. They're sent out as public blessings to show the love and the goodness of God that are part of the gospel message. And they take that message out as a fulfillment of prophecy. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet Ezekiel says, when the new covenant comes, when the Messiah comes, God is going to bring a new heart and a new spirit to each of his people. And one of the things that's going to happen when we receive the message of the kingdom is that we're going to repent. And Mark tells us in the parallel passage in Mark 6 that the response to the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is for us to repent. The message of the gospel always brings both repentance and joy. Repentance and joy. 
we realize our own unworthiness, our sinfulness, our undeserving nature. And so we repent. But simultaneously, we're filled with joy because of the good news of God's grace, the provision he has made for our sin. And so the message of the gospel is always received with both joy and repentance. Look also at verse 8. Jesus explicitly tells his disciples they've been given their miraculous powers freely. They haven't paid for them. They haven't earned them. They've been equipped with them by Christ himself. And so they're to give to others freely. They're not to take advantage of those powers to build themselves up. They're not to take advantage to make a profit off of those powers. It would be very tempting, wouldn't it? If you have the power to raise the dead, you can make a lot of money with that kind of power. You can make a profit pretty quickly, I would think, with that kind of power. And Jesus says, you receive that freely, you give it freely. The ministry of the gospel is a ministry of giving to others. And the proper response to the incarnation of Christ, to Jesus' instructions to the apostles and to us, and to the preaching of the kingdom of heaven, <coughs> is that we should respond with a life of giving. We live in a time where the focus in our society is on receiving. The commercialism of our culture has something to do with that. And yet the whole tenor of the incarnation, of Christ's coming, of this message of the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the king has come, it all moves in the direction of giving. The consideration of Christ's instructions to do good to others without reward should free us up to do good to others without reward. The disciples are going out not to get, but to give people the hope of salvation. They're not going out to make themselves look great. They're not going out to improve their own reputation. They're just going out to offer the gospel freely to the people of Israel. It's precisely that self-giving love for other people and putting them first that says, I'm not looking for any return in this life for myself. I'm simply looking to give you that which is best. And there's no answer to that kind of love. Loving, serving, giving all go hand in hand with proclaiming the gospel. It's his instructions. It's his strategy. It's his message. And when we understand and obey that, we'll learn that his mission builds trust. His mission builds trust. Verses 9 and 10. We look there and we notice Jesus' emphasis on the providence of God. The disciples have to learn to trust him in their mission. He says, verse 9, Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. They don't get to prepare in the normal way for this mission. They're not supposed to take a bag for their journey, or two coats, or a sandal, or a staff. I think because of the shortness of the journey, but probably more important because of the urgency of the mission that he's sending them out on. Jesus essentially says, you don't have any time. You can't take time. Don't burn yourself trying to collect all these things, all this stuff. You just trust that the Lord's going to provide for you on this mission. Go. Disciples are told to travel light. And that forces them to trust in God's provision. It forces them to trust in Jesus' promise 
that God would provide. And they learn a great lesson in that. They learn about the urgency of the mission that Christ is sending them on. It's so important that when they're sent out, they can't take time to pack. We must never allow the urgency of the gospel to be lost on us. The kingdom of God is at hand. Who knows, as we're with our, uh, and spending time with our friends and our neighbors this summer, whether or not that'll be the last time that we'll get to be with them. The kingdom of God is at hand. Christ has made us witnesses. That's what we are. It's not a question of whether we're witnesses or not. It's a question of whether we're good ones or bad ones. He's made us witnesses. How do we bear witness to the urgency of the gospel? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're also taught in this passage about trusting in Christ's provision. We're to trust in his provision for the work of the ministry. This is not a universal command the Lord is giving to missionaries. He's not saying don't raise support, don't go out with any possessions, don't take any extra clothes, don't go out with any funding. That's not the point. He's demanding here that his disciples trust in his provision as they go out on their mission. And it's important for us too. And it may be more important for us because we have so much. The more we have, the more important it is to trust in God's provision. The more the Lord has given you, the more tempting it is to trust in what he's given you and not trust him. It's easy to trust the gifts and not the giver. Even as a church, the more he's given us as a church, the more tempting uh, it is for us to say, well, we have all the resources we need. We just need to do a little planning. But Christ's ministry is only carried out in his power. And the more we have, the more we need to trust in his provision and his power for ministry, because in the end, it doesn't matter what we bring to the table. Our resources mean nothing in the kingdom of God. God can use them. God doesn't have to use them. Uh, whatever we have doesn't bind God in any shape or any way, any form at all. His resources mean everything. And we have to learn to trust him like the disciples did. So it's all good, right? Not so fast. Because the last thing we learn in this passage is that his message creates division. His message, his mission, creates division. Look at the last five verses there, 11 through 15. You know, he's given this procedure to his disciples. In verses 5 and 6, he told them uh, what people they're to go to. In verses 7 and 8, he gave them the message to proclaim, gave them power in order to confirm the message. Verses 9 and 10, he said, you're going to have to trust in the providence of God. And now he's given them the procedures to follow in verses 11 to 15. And he makes it clear that the message they're going to take to Israel is of eternal significance. Starting at verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Disciples are called upon to display an extraordinary balance of generosity 
and discernment. They're to be generous in the sense that everywhere they go, if they're received, they're pronounced their blessing on that place. They're to pronounce the peace of God upon those who receive them into their houses. But they're also to be discerning because those who reject their message are to be rejected. In fact, he tells them, shake the dust from your feet. That's an Old Testament thing. That's a symbol from ancient Israel. When one was outside Israel and you were in Gentile territory on pagan lands, when you came back to Israel, before you actually entered, you were to stop and shake the dust from your feet so you wouldn't bring that pagan soil back into the Holy Land. And the Lord is saying, if someone rejects the message of the kingdom, you shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them that you're not bringing that pagan soil back to the Holy Land. Got to recognize the gravity, the seriousness of this message that Christ has entrusted to the disciples. It divides the world into those who receive him and those who reject him. And in our culture of political correctness, it's important for us to recognize that the Christian message divides the world. There will be those who receive it and those who reject it. And there's no in-between. And the receiving or rejecting of that Christian message means either heaven or hell. It is of the utmost significance. And the apostles are to remember as they went out into the world. And we're also to remember that as we go out into the world. Remember, they're going to Judea. And the Judea, the disciples, had never heard the gospel like we have. And if Judea in Jesus' time is more liable because they're going to hear the disciples, whereas Sodom and Gomorrah never had that privilege, how much more liable are we who have heard the gospel? Most of us, for most of our lives, have been in Christian churches where the word was read and the gospel was preached. That means we're liable. And the only possible response, the only good response to that message is that we would embrace it, embrace the kingdom, trust in Christ, place your faith in him, rest in Christ alone as the only provision for your sin, and by grace, through faith, receive him as your Lord and Savior. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. In this passage, we see your son sending people out to proclaim the gospel, to tell others that the king has come. Help us to be people who proclaim the kingdom. And so, Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we ask that by your spirit you would draw that person to yourself by grace, through faith, in Christ, that they might embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior that they would receive him and not reject him. And as always, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever.